Hey guys, welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And by that intro, you must know that something different is going on. Yeah. What's going on, You can guess, we're talking about turbos today. Yeah, we're going to be talking about turbos, and uh, I think there's probably going to be a lot more to this than you think. Why? I just, you just, you don't really kind of take it for granted, right? You take the technology for granted. It's just there. Yeah. But we don't really know necessarily. I don't know the history of where it comes from. Well, so I thought I'm, you were telling me there's going to be more to this than I think. I was uh, like, no, but no, I'm, no. I'm the one presenting this. <laughs> no, more than, uh, more than, when I say more, more than, than our listener right. may, when I say you, uh, may know. Yeah. When I say you, I'm imagining the person listening. And Thank it just you. happens to be that you are also here listening. So, I, yeah. So we're listening yeah. to each other. Yes. So uh, hopefully you enjoy that episode. But we have a, a couple things to cover before we get started yeah we have basically a week left of our month-long momo giveaway so as uh hopefully you are aware we're giving away a brand new momo prototipo racing steering wheel and yep. we're also going to give away the matching hub adapter that'll go with your car all you have to do to enter to win is to go over to itunes and leave us a review along with uh, some comments so you have to you have to enter your star rating and then also make a comment otherwise it doesn't alert us that you've commented right so we're gonna try and do i know we all of our spotify listeners and our android listeners um are feeling a little bit left out in this so next month of the month after month after we'll probably do another contest of some sort i have some other ideas for different contests yeah we'll give away some maybe some some other items i don't want to say what i kind of kind of have in mind but there's some stuff that we'd like to do for you guys to uh reward you for listening and hanging out with us a couple times a week absolutely so uh what what do we got that tell me all about let me let me let me (laughs) Okay, I was going to go with a different pun, but that's good. Uh, So the history of forced induction as a whole is almost as old as the internal combustion engine itself. So as early as 1885, Gottlieb Daimler. So Daimler, one of the first. We talk about this guy a lot. Well, he's like the inventor of the internal combustion (laughs) engine. Okay, so like he gets. Rightfully so. Yeah, he gets some. uh, He gets some kudos. Right. So this guy Daimler experimented with increasing the power output of his engines by compressing the combustion air way back in 1885. He actually patented the first ever forced induction model, utilizing a gear-driven pump to force air into an internal combustion engine. So that would be a supercharger. Yeah. So the high pressures within the engine. Resulted in increased power and efficiency. Do we know what kind of supercharger this was? Was I mean? So it says it's the patent says a gear-driven pump, basically. Okay. So, so are we talking like just like a diaphragm pump? Do you think something really basic? No, right? I do think it was still like a centrifugal supercharger. Okay. Or you know a roots type. So this is getting more technical than I thought earlier <laughs> on. But, but supercharger style. I, I always want to know how yeah, yeah. things work. It's yeah. Just my so brain. the centrifugal supercharger is basically like you think of as like the hair dryer, right? So it yeah. has a little spinny fan in it that blows air out of it. There's also like the big V8 hot rod superchargers that sit on the top scroll, of the engine. Like the scroll, the screw type screw. superchargers. And yep. then there's the scroll superchargers, like a like a G ladder that's in a. A G60 Volkswagen, like yeah, a Corrado. That's, that's a very unique supercharger as well. And that it is, is a piece of shit. <laughs> it's weird. That's almost like a rotary in the sense that it has the veins and yeah. everything else to it. That is a bizarre. Biz- we're talking about superchargers. I was going to say, that's not what we're talking about today, okay? <laughs> Sorry. We're focusing on turbos. You see, in 1896, Swiss mechanical engineer Alfred Bucci filed a certain patent. And Bucci actually modified this existing supercharging concept by harnessing the pressure of the engine's exhaust gases to drive the compressor, giving rise to the first turbine-powered supercharger, or as we call it today, turbocharger. So what was this on? 
Um, was it on a vehicle, a car, or a plane, he, or a boat? Or I, a it was basically lawnmower? just a, a standalone engine. Okay, so he's just designing this yes. concept. So I, I want to take right now is a good idea to go a little sidebar and say, how does all this turbocharging trickery work before right. we delve into all the applications? So in any internal combustion engine, you need to have, well, I should say that the more air and fuel you can get into the cylinder, the more power you're going to have. And it's fairly easy to spray the more, more air that's in there, the more you're compressing and the more the obviously the resulting explosion right is, bigger explosion is, is bigger power so it's easy to spray more fuel in the cylinder but how do you provide enough air to burn all that fuel you have to cram it in there somehow basically every performance compress it thing ever is how to get more air into exactly. the engine whether it's nitrous turbocharging supercharging exactly just everything it's all yes. about more air so as we mentioned superchargers use the spinning of the actual crankshaft to power a blower or air compressor to shove the air in there turbos on the other hand use and by crankshaft you mean like off a belt or direct it's drive either, or whatever uh, yep it's either gear driven off of a belt generally or yeah, there are actually direct drive yep. ones as well that like literally bolt onto the, the crankshaft. Front of the, yeah, They're right on the sweet. <laughs> um, so turbochargers on the other here's hand. A, here's a question for you. What? What sounds better to you, a unsilenced supercharger okay. or a turbocharger? It's oh, that's like it's different. I know it's different. That's why I'm asking. Do Which you have you, an opinion on it? Um, no. I don't either. That's why, like, <laughs> I, I really, once it's like comparing two really great things. Like, what do you like better? Do you like a great steak or do you love, like, a great apple pie? Right. They're, they're both, both. They actually go really well together, just like twin charging. <laughs> there you go. See, we're really good at this analogy yeah, thing. Yeah. All right. So you just really wanted to use that. I just really desperate for it. Jeez. All right. So turbochargers, on the other hand, they aren't they aren't um, powered directly by the engine's rotation. Right. They use the otherwise but wasted. I, I, I what? I'm sorry. I forgot because I got all wrapped up in the. Yeah. But uh -huh. I, what I was going to say is, have you ever heard uh, a Corrado with mm -hmm. a supercharger on it? With all the silencer stuff removed. Yeah. Where it's, it just sounds. It, no, it literally sounds like a fire engine. It's, it sounds like a fire engine driving. Like you know, you know the big cranks that they used to have back in the day oh, for like cranking the siren. The siren. Yeah, 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 yeah. Like, yeah, that's exactly what okay, they sound sure. like. And I, I kind of really you know like why that because it's so disturbing. Because they both use huge gear, um, not reduction, but gear. What would you call that? What's the opposite to gear reduction system? Gear uh, in, 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 increase suction. <laughs> We are idiots right now. <laughs> I don't know. It's don't yeah. Know. It's basically geared up so much, and you're actually hearing the gear whine a right. lot of times. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, for sure. All right. As I started to say, like 15 I separate times. I will Turbochargers, unlike superchargers that use the actual rotational force of the engine, are powered by the otherwise wasted pressure of exhaust gas coming out of the engine, and it uses that to spin a turbine, which is basically a supercharger in reverse that then has a shaft that powers the compressor housing of the turbocharger. Right. So basically it's a hairdryer run off the exhaust gas. This is exhaust gas passes through the fan of the unit. It drives the, the other side. Through unit, the shaft. Through the shaft. In the unit. And basically blows the air back into the engine again. Right. So, but it's, I mean, what kind of parasitic loss are we talking here? So that that is a factor. 
Um, yeah, because basically, uh, think of like your your normal like big block V8. They're always running like super wide open headers and everything else because you want to be able to get the exhaust out of there as quick as possible for efficiency and also heat. You want that heat, all that just to be gone, right? Yeah, immediately. But basically, yeah, it's anything you're you have to pump out of the engine is wasting power pumping it out. Pumping loss is literally what it's called. So you're right that using that that exhaust gas to pressurize the turbine housing does have a parasitic loss on the engine power. However, it can be made up for by the kind of uh, exponential or multiplying factor of having a bigger compressor housing. So you're actually forcing more air into the engine than you're using to press out of the engine. So what's the compromise then? Well, I mean, there's always like a, a downside, right? Right. So that's where uh, things like turbo lag come into effect. So basically, you need to have enough volume of gas coming out of the engine to power and spool up. You've heard that term, spool up the turbo charger so now you can start compressing so for instance like when i had my crazy rigged together turbocharged setup on my mg you know i had my boost gauge and you can see you're you're in vacuum most of the time so your engine is sucking air in most of the time until you really have like near full throttle and then all of a sudden the exhaust is making up more volume to push through the turbocharger than is pressing and being used by the engine you go over atmospheric pressure basically you know you're in vacuum and then you reach atmospheric pressure Which is 14.7 PSI. And then after that Mm -hmm. is boost. Mm, 14.7 PSI is atmospheric. Is one bar. Well, yeah, but you're if you're if you're running at 14 psi, then you're, you're at two bar, two atmospheres. Right. Right. So, okay. yeah. Okay, I get what there you're saying. There is there is pressure on us all the time, and that is technically 14.7 psi. Yeah, but we're not. We nobody factors that in no, anything. Okay. No. I mean, never mind. But <laughs> anyways, wow, we went off on a tangent there. So uh, you may have also heard the expression "suck, squeeze, bang, blow." That is basically the different. Uh, functions of an internal combustion engine. Right. Your, your piston is sucking in air. It's squeezing it with the compression stroke. It then has the uh, the explosion or power stroke, and then it uh, blows it back out, and then the turbocharger basically uses that whole function to create power. So uh, there's other factors that go into this. Uh, compression ratio is a huge factor. You can't just run a ton of boost or compressed air on a high compression engine that isn't made to use it because then you're going to blow everything up inside your engine. Right, so that is just... kind of the other trade-off you were talking about earlier is generally turbocharged engines have a lower compression ratio. So they're not making as much power off of boost when the turbocharger isn't compressing air into there, but it can make more and it helps it with efficiency, too. I mean, yes. it, it really does. Yes, it does. Because like I said, it all comes down to the fact that you're using that otherwise wasted exhaust gas. Right. And Plus, you're, I mean, you, energy. You're, you're still running energy. on very, very low um, load on the engine when you're just tooling around. Right. You know, you're not using that boost. It's not there. The engine doesn't have to make a ton of horsepower. It can be low displacement. Yep. Good point. But when you put your foot in it, you've got that extra boost. It's mm-hmm. there. There's more power generated. So it gives you the kind of the, the benefit of having a uh more efficiency if you need it. Right. And that's why everything now is obviously well, I was gonna turbocharged. Say, so, yeah, the the um, the whole concept they're calling downsizing an engine displacement is you're able to add a turbocharger or some sort of force induction to make the same amount of power as you would with a naturally aspirated engine with lower displacement and lower fuel uh, usage when it's not right. So needed. when I was asking you what the downside was, for me, the real true downside, mm-hmm. and we're probably going off. I'm sorry. I'm probably ruining your entire presentation. We're like presentation. 20 minutes in, and we got to keep going. We're only 11. All right. There you um, go. So it's it's the uh, the uh, anytime you add a system mm-hmm. onto the car, 
it becomes less reliable. Whether yeah, it's coolant or oil coolers or forced induction or right. um, uh, whether it's engine management computers, every all of that stuff adds levels of complication to the system, right. which inherently makes things more reliable. Yeah, I was actually going to touch on some of the other hardware needed for turbocharging. Let's have it. And well, that that the other thing or factor is heat. You're literally taking super hot exhaust, putting it into a unit, as you called it, your turbocharger, and then you're basically transferring that heat into your intake air. Right. So one of the things you need to do is try to cool that intake air to make it, it also makes it more dense. So right. more dense air can actually fit more into the cylinder as well and make it more efficient. So intercoolers, there are basically two when types. When did those come around? Um, they were first used on diesel turbocharging okay. systems, and I don't have exactly when they came out. Um, but it was, actually, no. They were used in World War II on airplanes as well. But anyways, intercoolers, basically, they try to cool this Otherwise, you get a heat-soaked motor, which just can, mm -hmm. which cause all, causes all kinds of problems, especially with older engines. Well, and if air is hot, it expands. So first, you're compressing it through the turbocharger, and if it's getting heated up in that point, you're basically not even ending up with as dense of an air charge as you could have otherwise by just letting it flow. Sure. So intercoolers, you have air-to-air -air intercoolers, which you see on the front of your car that just passes air through it like a radiator. There's also air-to-water intercoolers where you're passing this charger compressed never, air through basically a cold bath of water. I never understood. I feel like that cannot be anywhere near as good. I, I see agree, people but with they're them. more efficient. I just can't they're wrap more my mind. It's probably because liquid is a much better transference of, of heat than, than, than air is. But yeah. it always just seems like it's just it's like you're piling another system within it, a well, system. Well, that's all it is. Yeah, it's and one I'm more like, system oh my God, on top of it. Just like, when, especially when you're doing like a custom a custom setup. Mm -hmm. Not only are you doing a intercooler, but then you have to have another tank. Yeah. For the, I mean, it's just it's just another thing. I know. You know. So in addition, you can't just run uh, compressed air into an engine all the time. So you need whenever you th you close your throttle. Now you have this huge, basically compressed air tank that is your entire intake system. Somehow you need to get rid of that pressure. So that's where right. blow off valves or recirc valves come in. So that's why you'll hear all those cool noises. That's right. the blow-off valve releasing that So as soon as you close air. the throttle, that exactly. pressure has to go somewhere. Exactly. And so Otherwise, that's where the blow-off valve You comes blow up in. the intake manifold, you blow everything up because exactly. the compressor would just keep... It would, yeah, and that's where uh, surge and back spinning comes in as well. And on the other side of the system, on the exhaust side, there's very similar to a blow-off valve. There is a wastegate. So that's when if your turbo is spooled up so much that you can't push any more air into the manifold, the wastegate will actually relieve pressure, and that's how you limit how much boost you're actually putting on an engine or how much compressed right. air as well. So back to our Swiss engineer, Alfred Bucci. <laughs> can, can I have one more complaint about turbochargers? Fine. When people do the analog thing on their street car. Yeah. So, okay. I so, can't stand it. It's so bad. It's cool. It was cool the first time you saw it, right? No. No. no? Well, the first time I saw it was, yes, because it was probably on a, on rally, a race car. Yeah. On a rally car right. or a race car or something. But now it's just obnoxious because you're never going to use it on the street. Like there's so, a guy that has it we, on his What like, are we Volvo. talking about? Yeah. So, so it's basically, basically it's over boost. It keeps, it's adding fuel to the system and air to the system to keep the turbocharger spooling while you're shifting. Mm -hmm. So you don't lose any boost in between shifts. Yeah, there's a couple different ways to accomplish this. Um, the first is by just basically dumping raw fuel or you're basically running an extremely rich um, condition when you're off throttle. And then because your exhaust manifold is so hot in itself, you're basically exploding the gas right in front of the turbocharger 
turbine housing. Right. Creating boost when you're off boost. And it sounds like it sounds like gunshots going off. And there's been stories lately of like with all the scare of mass shootings and everything else, people are like using their anti-lag on the street and like cops get called on them and they get in big it's, trouble for doing the that. thing is is that nobody that's on the street driving their streetcar around is really getting that much of a benefit out of some anti-leg tune on their car it's Absolutely. almost as bad as a burble tune it's yeah. just right it's like, no just stop just it stop. sounds kind of cool the first couple times you hear it but the concept of it it's it goes back to like form over function there's no function of it on the street so None. it's just dumb i mean there is but you're not no. it, you're not seeing enough benefit you're not running laps you're not it's just it's right or like, you know, in a drag race scenario, you can boost up without um, having load on the engine by basically it, it doesn't, it, it's the same as a two-step system as well. So mm-hmm. there's basically hard limit and soft limit on your rev cut. So it will basically not fire spark on some cylinders. So now you have this uh, this air and fuel that goes out of the cylinder right into your exhaust manifold, does the same thing, explodes in the exhaust manifold, spooling up your turbo. Also very bad for your engine. Not only <laughs> because it sounds awful for your not engine. only because you have all this force on it when there's no uh, load, we'll call it, but also what is gas that's unburned in your cylinder do? It washes the cylinder, say it's cylinder wash. So you're you're basically you have unlubricated pistons going up your cylinder wall and you're your uh, oil is actually getting um, filled with all this unburnt fuel as well. You know, I, what I think it is, is a lot of people are just trying to find different ways to stand out. They're mm-hmm. trying to like, especially with cars today, is what what can you do? Mm-hmm. What can you do? It's I mean, you can put a cold air intake on your car. You can put a tune on your car. You can put exhaust on your car. Nobody's popping it, like the intake manifolds off and doing different intake manifolds. They're like, all right, what else can we do? I know. Let's make it make all these weird noises. And just because they, <laughs> they, there's no, it's so hard to make your, especially yeah. your engine compartment, to make things unique. So they're just trying to, people are trying to come up with new ways to try and stand out. Right. Just, but don't, don't do it anymore. Just like Alfred Bucci was in 1896. Right. So here's our Swiss engineer, Alfred Bucci. He Leave was, it to the Swiss. Kinda, yeah. yeah. Swiss watches, turbochargers. Makes sense that Saab then was a big turbo yep. uh, aficionado. I guess is what you'd call him. Was was oh, rest in peace, Saab. <laughs> no kidding. Do we have a wah 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 for that? <laughs> you are so excited about your soundboard. I, know. I only have two sounds though. That's okay, it. That's well, well <laughs> keep that in mind for my future setups. All right, so. He had this early uh, turbocharging patent, and the concept, he was able to, quote, achieve a power increase of more than 40%. Sounds about right. But it's really good on, like, his first ever concept to have that much efficiency. But it still took another 20 years for the idea to really come to fruition. The first commercial usage of turbocharging technology was actually for large marine engines for ships. So the German Ministry of Transport commissioned the construction of passenger liners in 1923. Both ships featured twin 10-cylinder diesel engines with output boosted from a naturally aspirated 1,750 horsepower to 2,500 horsepower by adding turbochargers designed by Bucci. At like 400 RPMs. Or yeah, if just, that. Whoa, 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 yeah, whoa, just whoa, nothing. Whoa, whoa, and the way that they could do it, I think one of the problems with, uh, with turbos back in the day is they didn't have any real way to measure fuel mixture. Right, so the way it's that all it was via carburetors, yeah. So basically, what? Well, not with well, the, not with diesels. Not with diesels. diesels. <laughs> yeah, you, you throw that in there. Uh, so basically, what they would do is they'd be like, "All right, well, we'll just set the turbocharger and the fuel up for this RPM, and then it'll probably run like shit when we're not at this RPM, but we're running at this RPM across the entire ocean for 
well, that's 60 just hours. It. Diesels, you don't it, need to have huge yeah. rev. Yeah, it didn't even ranges. do anything. So, uh, World War One, French engineer Auguste Rateau fitted turbochargers to his Renault engine powering various French fighter planes with varying degrees of success. He'll be one of those guys. Yeah, so that's all we have for that time period. Then we move on. Do we know what happened to any of these No, I don't know what happened to Augusto Rateau. But over in the U.S. in 1918, the first mass-produced turbochargers came out of General Electric's factory. So interested in the possibility of aviation usage, the company's head engineer, Sanford Alexander Moss, attached a turbocharger to a V-12 Liberty aircraft engine. He then hauled the enormous engine up to the top of Pikes Peak in Colorado at 14,000 feet to demonstrate that it could eliminate power loss usually experienced as a result of air density at high altitude. You know, what's funny is when I was on my way back from uh, California, we stopped in like near Denver up in the mountains with a bunch of Porsche guys. Mm -hmm. They all had 930s. All oh, of them. Yeah, which is turbocharged 911 yeah. because, hey, guess what? You don't have power otherwise yeah. in, in and We're at four to 6,000 feet all the time in that area. Yeah, and so you're just sitting just, there going, your, your car basically performs like mine then. Uh, not that bad. <laughs> oh. <laughs> oh, we'll talk about that on Monday's okay, episode. Yeah, that'll be coming up Monday. I forgot to put that in the show notes. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> You're welcome, <laughs> sir. So how badass is this guy, though, in uh, 1918? He just straps a turbocharger onto this huge V12, hauls it up the top of Pike's Peak, and he's like, see, it makes the same amount of power up here as it does down there. That guy's And awesome. everyone's just like, this is amazing. So in Because there, a turbocharger will just run absolute pressure. Like if you right. have a blow-off belt set to 1.4 bar, the turbocharger will spool and do that much boost. It'll just spin faster, right? Exactly. Because it'll make absolute pressure that's rec- that is going to build up in that intake charge. Yep. And so it's, it's via the wastegate on the exhaust So you're side. basically making the same amount of power because the turbocharger is just spooling it's harder. It's just compressing the air regardless of how... Yeah, thin or thick the air is due to atmosphere. Right, yeah, it just spins faster to, to make up for it. Yeah, so in 1920 then, the first turbocharged plane was tested. La Pierre, uh, it was a LaPierre biplane, which was fitted with one of these 12-cylinder Liberty engines, uh, which was then retrofitted with a turbocharger. And ironically, they selected this plane because they believed it would be less likely to break up in the event of a long fall from altitude. Oh, God. So <laughs> a brave young man named Lieutenant John McReady... What do you think the pay was? Was there like a bonus? And I think it, like <laughs> at this day and age, it was kind of like, you know, you just wanted to be the guy. You want to be the guy and all the women waiting at the bottom with their little white umbrellas? <laughs> <laughs> sure. So uh, this brave young man, Lieutenant John McReady, was selected. McReady. Great name. I He's love that. <laughs> McReady. Are you McReady? I'm I McReady. Am. <laughs> uh, is that something from McDonald's? <laughs> too soon. I was going to set you up with a terrible joke. Damn Darn it. it. <laughs> well, I'll get, I'll get there. Uh, okay. So McReady, which you can buy from McDonald's, it's always ready. Hot yeah, and ready. It is. Okay. Unless it's a McRib and then you have to wait like once every two two years or whatever <laughs> to finally get one. <laughs> so he was selected to fly the plane. On his first outing, he took it up to 33,000 feet. Jesus. And I don't have what the baseline for like this plane otherwise would have been. What year is this? 1920. So this dude doesn't have like oxygen. Hold on. It's even better than you think. Okay. So McReady didn't stop with that altitude. <laughs> in fact, he, in a very short time, became one of the most experienced high-flying altitude pilots in the world, testing turbochargers from 1917 to 1923. The highest he flew in his open cockpit plane <laughs> was an indicated 40,800 feet 
Do you have September any, 28th, 1921. It is, it's like negative 75 you degrees. You can't breathe at 40,000 <laughs> feet. It's, it, wow. I'm just, so no, here's the thing with these planes. The only thing that's liquid in the plane is the oil and the gas. Uh-huh. All the, like, there's no hydraulics to, like, oh, freeze yeah, up. Oh, yeah, no, it's all it's manual. It's all cables and everything like that. So yep, at least there's but that. But your blood can freeze up. <laughs> like, it certainly can. Dear Lord, open cockpit 50, at 40,000 feet. Yeah, that's incredible. So this concept of using turbos and high altitude Dude, has some applications, sure. he did have, Mick Reddy had McBalls. <laughs> so turbos and high altitude applications was obviously a success, right? They're like, this is sweet. And then World War II really jump-started all this engineering. U.S. aircraft especially used turbochargers. They included the B-17 Flank Fortress, the B-24 Liberator, the P-38 Lightning, which is my favorite uh, airplane of the era, the P-47 Thunderbolt, and the B-36 Bomber. The engineering flight manual for the B-36 Bomber famously stated that, quote, with turbo technology, the B-36 Bomber would require 90 cylinders in each of its six engines with How turbo many cylinders? it would without turbo technology 90 it cylinders. would require 90 cylinders in each of its six engines with turbocharging that number was cut down to 28 that's that's crazy Quit making noise over there sorry i was just putting a know, little instagram story thing so the technology was also experimented with by a number of other manufacturers and other countries during the war but the need for advanced high temperature metals in the turbo housing and all these materials were really in short supply during wartime. So that kind of kept them out of widespread use. Um, and also, as I found this interesting at the time, that because superchargers were much more common at the time, so like you knew of superchargers, but turbos were still kind of a, a weird technology. Right. Um, they turbochargers themselves, because they're not as well understood, became referred to as turbo superchargers because if okay. it's a turbocharger no one would know so where's the, I, my question is where's the word turbo come from turbine it's a turbine driven okay. supercharger okay. as i said but at the turbo, beginning where did, how do they come up with turbo like where because turbo sounds sweet yeah but why didn't they just call it turbine a, a turbine sure because it's turbocharger so why don't they just call turbine it a turbine charger? charger turbine charger yeah why, where did turbo come from i just that's Maybe it's like a Latin root word of I don't know. what I'm turbine look. means. You keep going. I'm going to see if I can find it. Okay. So these turbo superchargers continue to be used in aircraft, ship, and even a few diesel trucks up until 1962. That's when General Motors decided that the 3.5 liter V8 under the hood of the Oldsmobile Cutlass just didn't have enough power. Instead of looking to GM's arsenal of small and big block V8s, however, Oldsmobile decided to do basically what no one else had done before. Working with industrial turbo manufacturer Garrett, who we still know is in uh, production today, Oldsmobile created the now legendary Jetfire V8 in 1962. Putting a turbocharger in a mass market automobile presented huge challenges for the Oldsmobile engineers, though, in the 1960s. Yes, Chris. I have my arm up. (laughs) Yes, you do. (laughs) It comes from the Latin word turbo, which is derived from the Greek word turbe, it means that which whirls or whirlwind. Okay. So, yeah. Turbine comes from whirl. And so, instead of turbine, you say turbo, which is the Latin It's term. basically the prefix is derived from the word turbine, meaning a mechanism in which a moving fluid, liquid or gas, makes a wheel or axle spin. It comes to English from French and originated a Latin word turbo, meaning spinning top or whirlwind. There you go. There we go. All right. Now, should I and quiz with that, you we'll on move where on we're to, uh, paying attention? We'll see you guys next week. <laughs> <laughs> 
I just unplugged my headphones. That's I can't right. hear myself. So uh, do you know where we're at since you weren't paying attention there? Oldsmobile. Right. Okay. So 62, the Oldsmobile Jetfire is the Oldsmobile Cutlass. And the submodel was the Jetfire. It's the Jetfire model, which is a sweet name. That is a sweet name. So, uh, but as you can imagine, putting a turbocharger. Do you think if anybody started naming new cars, because right now cars are dumb. It's like they are 300 dumb. or whatever. But if someone came out with like Jetfire, everybody would laugh. I know. No one would take it seriously. No one would now. take it seriously. It's just kind of a bummer that there's no, you can't go back to that. Right. I mean, you can't right. read. Did they? Nobody thought Jetfire was dumb back then. They're like, oh, Jetfire. That sounds awesome. Yeah. But now it's just would be kitschy and stupid. I, that's a good word to be kitschy now. Yeah. So too bad. Anyways, the Jetfire engine had a compression ratio of 10 and a quarter to one, which made it, of course, vulnerable to engine knock and detonation. I was gonna say, that's with a turbo with a turbo. Th- that's a lot of compression. That is a, that's like a high compression engine, especially since a lot of engines back then were like eight to one. I know. So I don't know why they did this in the 60s, but anyways, it had a compression ratio of 10 to 1, and it uh, didn't have any modern-day engine management. It's all carbureted still, so it you know was very uh, vulnerable to engine knock. So Oldsmobile got around this problem by using a system to inject what it marketed as, get this, turbo rocket fuel oh my god no turbo rocket fluid i'm sorry turbo rocket fluid oh my god what is so this? if you're a guy who knows something about modern aftermarket tuning you might start to think this odd this sounds oddly like yeah. water meth injection yeah that's exactly what it was turbo okay. rocket fluid was actually just a one-to-one mixture of water and methanol so a water meth kit or methanol injection will actually cool the intake charge substantially substantially that's because evaporation is a cooling process thank you chris yeah Yes, it is. And when you have like alcohol or methanol or anything like yep. that, it evaporates very fast. Yep. So it cools the air, makes it more dense, but more importantly, well, it, it cools makes it the, less it cools dense the, or makes it less uh, susceptible to detonating. Right. Because it's cooler air. It's, yeah. yeah. Detonation, by the way, we should mention is when the the intake charge in the cylinder explodes before it's supposed to. Right. It's not good. Not good at all because your piston's still coming up on your compression stroke. Have you ever heard it? Like what it hears? It sounds, it sounds like, like a like. hammer. No, no. no. Have, you, have like you ever really ping. heard like that's why they call it pinging? Yeah, but have you really heard like a pinging engine? Like when you rev it Maybe up and you get up, bad. It sounds like um, it almost sounds like a like a dentist drill. Like bzz, like it's like a at least with, with an ignition ping. Like if you have okay. like too much compression and you have ignition, oh, it's like, it's almost sounds like uh, I don't know even know how to explain. It. Almost like a, a like if you had a tattoo needle and you stuck it on a piece of metal. Oh, they're like because you think if it's if you've got like six cylinders at seven thousand RPMs and mm-hmm. it's detonating on every single one or even every right. other one, it's happening very very fast. So it's like it makes this weird kind of buzzing, like buzzing zipper sound. It's right. It's it's basically compression ignition, which ironically is what diesels do every single time they fire. Right. So that's beside the. Fact. I don't know why I was starting to go down that. But anyways, so Jetfire. The ger- Jetfire turbo model made the Cutlass noticeably quicker than its naturally aspirated twin, but it never really caught on with the public. No. It was more expensive. Part of the reason was the price, is why it wasn't as uh, popular. The price premium for force induction was astronomical in 1962, seriously hampering its commercial viability. They uh, actually only made less than 4,000 Jetfires 
ever because of this. So can you maybe guess what this astronomical price increase was that people what's just the, what, refused to What's pay? the cost of the original? I like, didn't look like, it up. That would have been more interesting. I don't know. Probably like, we were talking about what, 1962. 1962. So it's probably like $3,200. $300. Oh, for the add-on? Yeah. Oh, I was thinking total cost of the car. Yeah. Oh man! So people—that's a lot of money, I, I guess. But I was like, really? That's but what, why? I mean, you got what killed it. This isn't the, the early '60s. Are people the average populace is not after performance necessarily right. in their cars? It hasn't gotten to that point yet. Right. That point didn't come to the late '60s, early '70s, where all of a sudden everybody wanted to go fast. The early '60s was kind of like where that started. And I know there was a lot of people trying to hot rod stuff back mm-hmm. then, but it wasn't you know Joe around the block. That was trying to hot right. rod things and go fast, stuff like that. That didn't creep into the American culture till the late yeah. 60s. So, yeah, one, because of the price, and two, because you had to mess around with this turbo rocket fluid to even run the car. And it, I hate that stuff. Anything it, like that, like E85, turbo rocket fuel, any of that kind of stuff that makes it harder to drive your car, ugh, leave it at home. No way. The AdBlue system for your diesel. You know, here, funny thing about that, I, knew, I used to complain about that a lot. Yeah. I was, it was leaking. That's why it always smelled well, that like, like it. piss in my car. Yep. And it, uh, but and it was, you kept having that warning come on. Yeah, but now it, it doesn't do it anymore. But it's like anytime you have to add something to make the car harder to drive it, especially when it comes to distance. <laughs> like there's always like, we'll be like, yo, we're going to go on a cruise. And there's a guy like, oh, I've got 85. Are there any stations on the way? I'm just like, go away. You know, it's like <laughs> strap a gas can to your roof. I don't know. There you go. You when making things harder for the group. So, yeah. And your turbo it, rocket fuel. Turbo rocket fluid, yeah. Whatever. Right. It, it was also... <laughs> so I, I'm just saying, I understand these yeah, guys. Why you would you want to do that? Um, it was also less than reliable, you know, I'm because sure. of all these things and the 10 to, 10 to 1 that compression was, ratio to why did they, I just I would love to know why they decided to go with such a high compression ratio on that motor. I, I'm, I don't have the performance numbers here, but I'm sure it was much, much quicker. I'm sure. So less than 4,000 jet fires were ever sold. And Oldsmobile pl- pulled the plug after just one year. What are those things going for now? They price-wise? have to be so rare and so valuable. Yeah. So although the old jet fire failed, that apparently didn't stop General Motors. In 1965, only three years later, Chevy unveiled the turbocharged Corvair Corsa. Oh boy. So the Corvair had an already novel design, right? So it featured an air-cooled flat-six engine mounted in the rear, a la Porsche, um, and the Corsa turbocharged model featured a pull-through carbureted turbo sitting atop the flat engine, delivering a boost of performance from 194. I'm sorry, from 140 to 180 horsepower. You know, so I don't fairly conservative. I don't know anything really about the Corvair. We should talk about that one should of these we talk episodes. Talk about Corvairs. Okay, we should because it's just such like a so out of left field, right? It I is mean, it's just so bizarre. Chevy to put Why? this thing out here. Some dude must have been like, guys. Trust me. (laughs) (laughs) This is the next best thing. Have you seen what these Germans are doing? Have you seen the 911? Let's just do that. Oh, God. Okay. So despite all the like technology outlay and everything else that they're doing, poor reliability again caused them to disappear quickly from the market. I think it was two or three years that they had these. So it's interesting, though, that it wasn't just GM. The same year, International Harvester Scout, which I love. Do you know what a scout is? I do. So International Harvester was basically a tractor, is still a tractor manufacturer, and they came out with a Scout, which is a basically a little SUV precursor like the original Bronco. Yep. Uh, it was available with a turbocharged 2.5-liter four-cylinder. It produced 110 horsepower, which is 20 more than naturally aspirated version, had more torque, um, and more importantly, it was able to do all this with regular-grade 
gasoline without the use of any water methanol kit. So is this are we thinking that this is one of the first cars that was turbocharged that was actually like not a piece of shit? Well, not really, because only after two years, International just scrapped the whole turbo okay. engine uh, for good old displacement. And they ditched the turbo engine in favor of another uh, four-banger with 3.2 liters, so they just made it bigger. Uh, the bigger NAA motor was able to produce the same amount of horsepower while using less fuel than its turbocharged cousin somehow. I'm sure it was just like a little more advanced engine. Uh, so manufacturers have seemingly decided that the economics of turbocharging just didn't make sense at this time. But this is late 60s, mid early 60s, 65. Yeah. So it was like that basically for the rest of the 60s. And then something interesting happened in 1973 when the oil crisis hit the world mm -hmm. and it hit the world hard. Turbocharging technology, as it turned out, had slowly and quietly still been being experimented and improved in the engineering halls of manufacturers. So when emission standards became more stringent and manufacturers were striving to make engines more efficient, turbocharging seemed like the solution. During this time, automakers also started to see the potential for turbos to make cars go really, really fast. Right. So the legendary BMW 2002 Turbo was put into production in 73, followed by the Porsche 911 Turbo. And the Turbo, when its first iteration was released in 74, the 911 Turbo was the fastest production car in the world. Yep. This was arguably the most significant commercial milestone for turbocharged engines, period, was the 911 Turbo. Do we have turbo. some performance numbers at all? No, that'd be nice for me to have in front of me. Yeah, um, I don't know them off the top of my head. I don't shame on me. I don't know that either. Um, but having been associated with the most exotic dream car of the day, the enthusiasm for turbos really took shape. And well, this is right after notice. Porsche came and schooled America, right, on it, all our racetracks and exactly. everything like that. And then they come out with this turbocharged thing that's the fastest thing in the world. Right. I mean, that's really that. The 70s were really the golden era for Porsche, all the things that they were doing. Yeah, so I was going to say, I mean, the 70s and we get into the 80s here a little bit more, but they saw crazy usage of turbos in motorsport because we saw Group B rallying. Formula One had those V6 turbos that were making like 1,500 horsepower yeah. unregulated. Endurance racing had, had all these Porsches and prototypes and everything else running. And that was know, before the all the, the old white men went, whoa, 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 whoa. Let's tone things back. Let's ruin well, all this shit. Let's kill Group B. Let's kill Can-Am. Let's shit on everybody. Shit on F1. They killed F1, Can-Am, and Group B all within the same period of time. And just everything, nothing has been the same since. That true. was that was the golden era of everything right there. What was the Ron Howard movie with uh, Nikki Lauda and oh, uh, uh, Rush. James Hunt Rush? I mean, if you've seen that, I think you can get behind the drivers saying, okay, we got to have some safety. I'm not even talking about safety. I'm talking about performance, oh. where they just started clamping down on, regu on regulations for the performance of the cars because right. they were just too dangerous. They were too yeah. fast. But it's like it's not like anybody was like, yo, Nikki. Get in that car or I'm going to kill your family. <laughs> right. It was the dude wanted to get in the car. He wanted to do it. All right. these guys wanted to do it. And it was just like the other day when I was talking about Brian Redman, how he couldn't sleep at night. He's like, I'm going to die tomorrow. Mm -hmm. And they would lay in bed and think about this stuff. And then they would get up and they would get in the car and they would do it anyway. And they wouldn't go on national television and whine about how they need a halo on their car. <laughs> you know, they're just whiny bitches now that just complain about everything. It would be like if I was an F1 driver. <laughs> just complaining about everything. You, I could see you complaining as I an F1 com driver. I would complain. Yeah, Probably not would. about the safety. You'd have something to complain about. I'm, I'm sure you I are would. literally complaining right now. <laughs> so, for the record. I'm, I'm stating facts. I know. And I, just like our friend McReady from back in the 40s. That guy, all these guys. Where are these guys? What are they? Where are these men 
in society today? What are they doing? Well, Hemingway said the only true sports left are uh, what uh, motorsport and bullfighting or something like something that. like that. Yeah, but it's not motorsport anymore. I know. So what is it? UFC. <laughs> I mean that's I mean that's not too far off I guess but we're I mean where are is it is society this is oh my god holy this is like T A N G E N T tangent <sighs> mm-hmm. where what has society done is it society's fault or is it kind of like a slow erosion of what's been going on because it seemed to happen from the late 70s on Everything before that was like wild, wild rest, right? I mean, even right. back in the day, you had Olympics and gladiators and people stabbing each other in the eye. Is that what you want to go back to? Chris is saying yes. Yeah, I would. Yeah. I like, let's say that there was some guy that was, um, <laughs> let, let's, let's say there was some guy that was convicted of like murdering his entire family. Uh-huh. I would love, I would pay $100 to watch that guy battle lions with a spear. Okay. What's the problem? I can't think of a problem but i'm sure someone would <laughs> i'm sure i'm just saying like the, the, it's, just, it's just that's that's I a little know. far removed from what i was saying originally but yeah <laughs> but i'm just where are where's the where's the courage where's the where's throwing it to the wind where's the where's the where's the masculinity gone where is it i don't know you did a whole episode on this previously by the way i know it's okay. yeah hey remember what this episode's about it's about how awesome <laughs> turbochargers were and how it was like People, men and uh, and industry and corporations use the turbocharger to like further goals of more power and faster right. and danger and speed and surmounting limits and and cresting goals and just all these different things that they used it for. It's a really, really important and integral part of motoring history. Mm-hmm. And now why it's been reduced it. to being a way for uh, manufacturers to get under and be able to sell a car in America through the EPA. Right. That's what it's been reduced to. I mean, yeah, okay. It has. I mean, it's. I mean, it's still used There's for still power performance too. Cars that use turbos. Everything uses a turbo now because it has to. Right. Right. Because it has to. All right. Can we like get back to we're my never, history? We're never going to get through this. <sighs> All right. I'm so getting angry. I know you are. This was not my intent. <laughs> I didn't think this was going to be a hot button issue for you. <laughs> I'm Jesus. just. I'm just mad. Like. <sighs> I need a time machine so I can go back and experience a bunch of cool you shit. You would okay, but if you grew up in the '60s and '70s like this, you would have been like, "It's nothing like the '40s, you pussies." No, because it's that's that's what everybody says. They said, "Oh, well, it's because it's, it's always different for the generation that came yeah. after it, or whatever." But it's not because if you were in the '40s and you went from the '70s, you had a you had a gradual increase, right? Mm-hmm. You ha- you're on this road that's slowly going up into this, you know, up into the into the unforeseen clouds, right? We don't know where performance is going. We don't know where it's going to stop. 40,000 feet, McReady's balls. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So we're going up and up and up, and technology keeps getting better. And now it's crusted off, right? I still think this is the golden era of motoring right now. I still think this yeah, is Yeah, we the, talked about that too. Yep, I, but it was a long time ago. This is the perfect time to be an enthusiast so and quit love cars. complaining. I'm just saying I wish there was some danger and some... Anyway, I'm sorry. 1977. Go saw the birth of the Saab 99 Turbo. And it was clear at this point that turbocharging wasn't going away. 1978 saw the Buick 
equip the Regal with a turbocharged V6, which then would ultimately lead to the high output Grand National. I hope we're going to talk about the Dodge Omni GLH. We are not. <laughs> we can right now if you'd want to. I just love that car. And the, like the, the bl- Shelby, uh, uh, what is that one? The Shelby, yeah. Oh, it is the Dodge Omni Shelby GLH. Yeah, yeah and then right. there's the... With the, like, the, the pepper pot wheels on the it. The Plymouth Horizon. Yep. The, and the, what was, what was the, uh, the friend of the Plymouth Horizon, the Dodge... Oh, I don't remember what it's called. Know. Those were cool. They had like a little, they're such like a little economy car, right? Right. They just had cloth seats, crank windows, and you didn't know anything about the car being really turbocharged. But then when you get in, my buddy had one in high school. Okay. But on the instrument cluster, there's like a, just, just the gauge. a giant turbo. It, it just says boost gauge. It just says boost. And then there's a needle. Sweet. There's no, no numbers. <laughs> no, there's <laughs> just zero. All of it. I, exactly. I'm like 16 years old. I'm like, what is that? What well, does that mean? And we just thought it was just the fun needle, right? Yeah. That's, basically. All, that's all it is. It was. It was. I neat. had a Saab 9.3, and it just had turbo. And again, no <laughs> indicators. It had red or it had green to red. Yeah, it's just like this is too much. Yeah. You're having way too much fun right now. <laughs> and then I put a manual boost controller on it too, so it'd go all the way into the red and just stay there. Yep. And I sold it before it blew up. Okay. Um, 1978 also saw the year that Mercedes-Benz released the 300 SD for sale in the U.S. So fitted with a Garrett turbocharger, the 3S SD changed the diesel engine forever. You see, because diesel combustion cycle depends on high compression, force induction is a great way to improve the power and efficiency of a diesel vehicle. We knew this before on the ships that we had and the uh, trucks, but this was the first car sold in the U.S. as a diesel, or turbo diesel, I should say. It quickly became evident that turbo diesels were far better suited to automotive applications than naturally aspirated diesels, and it's no surprise then that turbo diesels account for half of the motors on the road in Europe. Not so much in the U.S., though, because people thought they were stinky. Right. Which Uh, they were. So (laughs) evidenced by the fact that they had to clean buildings like once every 10 years in Europe because they just got. Oh, yeah. The Coliseum. They have to keep scrubbing. Yeah. Yeah, It's it's not actually supposed to be gray. It's white. (laughs) Oops. Uh, In 1981, Maserati decided that if one turbo was good, two probably would be better. So the result was the aptly named Turbo. While it wasn't a particularly good car, it was the first twin turbocharged passenger car ever sold. I wonder if that if I should buy one of those and road trip at home. I think you should. I've, totally. I've, I've been keeping my eye out for a decent one. I just I kind of they're so weird looking. I like the way they look. Is and that the, the one with the rear wheel well where it's like a square? No. Okay. No, it's not like That's that. It's got the four Maserati. quad headlights in the front. Yeah. And uh, the thing is, is that the early ones were really bad. They were like carbureted. Mm-hmm. It was brutally bad right the later ones i think were fuel injected and they're not so bad but i'd like to drive one i'd like to own one cool okay i'll park it well, next to my yugo <laughs> oh god you have the weirdest. then i'll have the two worst cars yeah, ever made basically so the bi-turbo theory was that using two turbos working in parallel with each other would reduce the amount of turbo lag because they're smaller there's less boost needed or mess, less gas needed to create boost and also less um inertia or less massy that you'd have to spin up. Uh, and the turbos were smaller. They were like little bitty yeah, guys. Yeah. yeah. Itty bitty baby turbos. Turbos? Oh turbos. My phone's off. I can't do the okay. trombone sound. In practice, it didn't always work that way. Uh, but the parallel twin turbo concept undoubtedly allowed engines in the future to produce freakish amounts of horsepower. Right. 
Uh, Porsche approved in 1986 with the 959. There's another way to use two turbochargers. Uh, the 959 actually had a sequential turbo system. So unlike a parallel twin where two turbochargers work independently at the same engine speed, a sequential setup involves one smaller turbo spooling up at low RPM and then the other bigger turbo spooling up at higher RPM, effectively not having lag. Um, that system really isn't used anymore. That's why the 959 isn't that cool to me. Really? I don't really like that car. That was I, like, I, people uh, are going to just freak out. But it was I, like, uh, I don't like it either because it's too... It's too It's too dated. It's all the technology that's in there is too... Like, right. well, that's a 959. All that technology was so landmark at that time. Yes, it was. But it was an engineering tour de force at the time. Similar. I would, I would here, rather, I'm drawing a parallel. Okay. Similar to the 918. Right. Which but, is yeah, which is totally useless but to me. It's already outdated. Oh, horribly so. Right. And the uh, I would rather from the time I would rather own an F forty. Yeah. No. Just I agree. straight up raw conventional supercar of the two cars. I'd rather have. I would much rather have an F forty. Even though they made, I think they made more F forties, or did they? Uh, I don't know. I don't know which they either made. Either way, of. they. Are I would rather have a lot more. Than They're worth a ton more money, and I think that's afford. why. Right, I mean, I think the the reason why they're worth so much more they money. They sound so sweet. Too. They sound sweet. They look sweet. They're like a, they're a conventional study in in uh, motorsport motoring elitism mm. of of the time. Just absolute savage not brutality. Elitism, just that, like that they, car was elite. That was the car. At the, I'm not talking elitism like hoo, hoo, hoo. I'm talking elitism as in like this was the elite car. This was. Right. This was the pinnacle of performance, right? And it still remains. The technology is conventional. It's right? totally different though, because the nine five nine was basically the like everyday supercar, but the absolute pinnacle of what was possible in an easy to drive, luxurious four wheel drive, leather, but everything but else. At the end of that sentence, you have to say, "At that time, right?" Which means now it's like all that stuff is kind of like in the way because you're <laughs> so like. My Golf has better technology than a 959. Right. My TDI. Mm -hmm. The turbo system's probably just in almost every way. Or like, let's say, for example, a Golf R. Let's sure. use a better example. Right. The technology's better, right? I mean, it's just No, I'm time. not disagreeing time with you. Time has made that better. But the F40, you don't compare it like that because it was just a raw project at right. the time with conventional motoring technology. I so so you, there's nothing really to compare that with now that's built. But it's still, you can get in one of those and just be like, wow, this is amazing and it's nostalgic there's nothing nostalgic it's raw from, it's simple in purity and purpose exactly and, and the I'll 959 just is just convoluted well yeah okay i'll tie it back to our actual article and topic turbocharging though do you know why the f40 had three tailpipes and two it, exhaust and one wastegate exactly so it's a twin turbo v8 flat plane crank and i think it was only like a 2.5 liter v8 they, they sound incredible. They do sound incredible. But you had two turbos, one on chief bank of the V8, and those exhausts would then come in the back. And so you have two big, like, wide diameter tailpipes. And then there was a single wastegate for both banks of cylinders that would then come out the center. There was a, did I tell you the story about how I got to hang out with an F40 for a little while? I don't think so. So when Alex and I were in Monterey. Oh, yeah. There's some dude yeah. headed in his driveway. And he's we, like, why we, go we to the up. car show when I can just put my car out and I'll, people I'll come to me? I'll make it quick because we're running out of time. But this was like top 10 car experiences of my life. Is when I'm in the 911 and Alex and I are looking for a photo shoot location for um, like this this car. doesn't matter. And we pull up and we're at like a T intersection. And I look over and I can just out of the just the sliver, like 
the guy's driveway because we were at such a perspective. It was really mm-hmm. narrowed what I could see through his sure. um, through his gate, and I could see like the two round taillights, and I could see the wing going vertically up and over. Right, and it was fucking red. It was like Ferrari red. I'm like, well, right. that's it's so incredibly obvious what that is. And there's, I can't think of that many cars where you could see just such like a small part of the car. Like and it's immediately, so iconic. Immediately know what it was. But we kind of pulled over and I, and I was sitting in the, in the driveway and the gate was open. And I, we're sitting next to the driveway on the road. I'm like, Alex, go knock on his door. No, no, I'm not going to knock on his door. I'm, not, I'm like, this is a once in a lifetime, lifetime opportunity. Just get out, go knock on his door and ask if we can take some pictures of his car. And the guy like actually opened his door mm-hmm. and came out to us and was like, hey, guys, what's going on? Pull on in. <laughs> we pulled onto his driveway and ended up filming the car. That's and really he revved cool. it up for us. And we were just like looking at it. And it was just like anytime you see cars like that, there's just like a million people all over the place. And so having kind yeah. of a one-on-one. He's like, oh, yeah, you got to help me open this, the engine cover, and blah, blah, blah. So I'm like opening the engine cover. I'm like, man, yeah. this thing must cost like, this engine cover is probably $60,000. Yeah. You know, just like, yeah. it's absurdly expensive. I'm like, and it's heavy. And it's got like this, this really crude pole that you use to mm-hmm. swing out and like set it down. It's like kind of crude. Old Ferraris are crude. They are. they're handmade. They are. That's what you don't realize. Yep, yep. And that's, I mean, that's probably part of the charm of why it's better than a 959 for me. If I would have seen a 959, parked in that guy's driveway, I would have been like, wow, that's a 959. Cool. And I would have kept driving. <laughs> yeah, you I know? get it. And when we, were at, uh, when we were at Canapa that same week, there was like six or seven 959s there. It's like 959, 959. They're just, I don't know if it's the Porsche effect of yeah, what's going on. I'm sure that is. It seems like they're everywhere. I don't and think that's accurate. It seems like they're everywhere. <laughs> we should look up some production numbers for it. I'd be interested to to figure it out, but maybe a different episode. How much this is about turbochargers? I Chris. know, I know, I know. But so since the seventies and eighties, where so we left off. What do you off, think? Do you think the listeners want to hear us do this? I think they. No, like, I, I think they like this. I think they like it. We'll. Everybody's talking to their radio. I'll be like, yeah, we like it. Okay, let us know. Yeah. Or do you want to hear more about turbos? Well, I think we can do both. All right, so since the 70s and 80s, turbos have undergone considerable... Oh, my computer is timed out because you've been (laughs) yakking too much. I am sorry that I am not sorry. Today, turbochargers are almost as technically complex as the engines that they're fitted to. We have twin scroll turbochargers, which basically means you have two separate exhaust channels for separate exhaust pulses coming in so they can time it correctly on the the turbine side. You have variable geometry turbos. I remember when those came out. This is mainly to get rid of turbo lag. Yes, And make it easier for... Joe down the street to drive the car. Right. Instead right? of the Widowmaker 930 Porsche where you'd sit. The, the the old joke was you'd you'd floor it, go get a cup of coffee, come back, and then the car would be on boost. Right. And the problem is, is that people would floor it and they'd get themselves into a corner. Yep. And the boost and would come on and then they would lift. would let go. Yeah, they'd lift off because they got scared because the boost came out in the corner and things started to fly. So they would immediately lift. And when you do that, and obviously in a 911... All the, that the weight is already is, going. It's never lift, yep. right? You just you just don't. You just get a drive through it. Yeah, I remember when we were. I was just at the track with uh, with Lewis, who's been on the podcast before, and Ryan Gates, who runs three eleven RS. Yep. And I was out with Ryan and Lewis's GT three, and there was one little section where it started to get sideways a little bit. Yep. And he didn't lift. He just he just basically stayed in it and corrected the skid and was like gone i think if he would have lifted like you would have been in the trees yeah you would have just would have been over i mean he was it was excellent car control is amazing but uh yeah you can't lift it's no good so that all those driving dynamics that turbos give you is not good for regular people right so that's why they came up with all this other you know additional systems 
to Such make it easier. Such as twin scroll turbos, yep. variable turbo geometry, which basically means you have these veins inside the, co- the turbine housing. V- the VNT, that was the, f- yes. I think that was uh, Volkswagen that came up with that for the TDIs. Yes. The and v- then the, variable f- turbo. the first uh, gas engine, turbocharged engine, was the Porsche 911 turbo of the 997 series, I believe, that had VNT. Uh, and then, of course, you have twin chargers, so we're moving back to using uh, superchargers, super yeah. which uh, Volvo's, like, just their SUV, the XC90, has a twin charged engine sure which is crazy to drive um and uh i lost my place again i need some jeopardy music on tap (laughs) (laughs) so with turbocharging technology coming so far and as we talked about before kind of this downsizing trend if a a car can use a two liter naturally aspirated engine the manufacturer is going to put in like a 1.5 liter with a turbo so they can get the same amount of performance but with more efficiency. Right. Turbos now are extremely common. They're ubiquitous because of downsizing. So really, where do we go from here? The next revolution is basically right is this around your the opinion? corner. Is this your opinion? No, this is fact. Electrically <laughs> assisted turbochargers yeah, I've seen those. are showing a lot of promise for future vehicles. So basically, rather than a standard turbocharger, it has the exhaust gas coming into the turbine housing and just there's literally a direct shaft that compresses the air on the compressor side. This will actually power a, uh, a generator inside the turbocharger then charges a capacitor because you can't charge a battery quick enough so that capacitor is then used to power the compressor wheel while the turbo isn't spooling this is so like a really have no turbo leg it's really a complicated version of that stupid stuff you used to see on ebay back in the day where it was like a little <laughs> yes. fan that you could put in line with like your you'd have a cold air intake and you could shove this yep. little electric fan and it would give you like one third of a psi right yeah it's like six I horsepower remember, or four yeah horsepower. being in high school and we went to like the auto zone or something and the dude behind the counter the green Greasy teenager. He's like, I have one of those on my Civic. Man, that thing's mean. <laughs> I still remember that was this quote. That thing's mean. It's like, yeah. okay, guy. It's basically like a computer fan. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's probably better than that. But it oh. doesn't do anything. It's right on the line of the, the whistle tip on the exhaust for me. It's right on par with that. Wow, what the cyclone? Do you remember the cyclone? That you put that familiar. in your intake track? It's just it's supposed to swirl the yes, air. I remember that. It's like that's literally just impeding airflow. <laughs> what the heck? Okay. So you have these e-turbochargers as they're calling them but it seems like we may never get to see those go mainstream with the coming flood of electric vehicles why would you have a turbocharged electric vehicle or a turbo e-turbo vehicle right with another system as you talked about chris speaking of systems what the hell are you doing right now really we can hear this no you can't yes what are you doing fixing the microphone okay apologize guys (sighs) what's better my microphone is here than on the floor i had to fix it okay anyways all these systems, very complex. We probably may not see these go mainstream in our lifetime, though, because everything is just going to go electric in I don't the think first it's, place. I don't think it's happening. As, I think everybody, there's a lot of people that really want all this to happen really fast, but it's not going to. Yeah. I really don't think, I don't want to get into a big diatribe about electric cars right now. I'd be, I'd be more than happy to, trust me. But I, I think we're probably, we're a ways away. Yeah? Yeah, I think we'll we're see. a ways. We'll we're see. at least seven, ten years. Okay. Well, nonetheless, turbos have a colorful history, and hopefully hearing that history has given your day a little boost. Yeah. Ooh, I see what you did see? there. I like uh? that. I like that. And uh, on that note, guys, we, uh, we, we, we look forward to talking to you on Monday. And uh, uh-huh. we're going to be, actually, are we going to be at uh, Cars and Coffee? No, that's next week. That's next week. So next week after that, we'll be live at Cars and Coffee. You can come visit us. Cars and Coffee there. is on the first 
Saturday of every month. It is. We still have another Saturday it is. in the month of August. Right. So uh, you can look for uh, Jake's very low 9-11 there. Mm-hmm. And we're going to actually talk about um, some projects we did with, with Jake's car at my house um, where it lived for multiple days uh, <laughs> on Monday's episode. So I look forward to talking to you guys and look forward to talking to you, Jake. And we will uh, see you next week. Take care. We'll be